welcome to the 10th episode of Thought Space, the podcast from the Center for Policy Research. CPR is an Indian think tank researching on various issues from urbanization to foreign policy, from economic reforms to environmental challenges. Today, Richard Bansal from the communications team will be in conversation with Dr. Prerna Singh, the Mahatma Gandhi Assistant Professor of Political Science and International Studies, fellow at the Watson Institute, Brown University, and a past affiliate of CPR to discuss her book how solidarity works for welfare subnationalism and social development in india hi i'm richa the place you live in has a huge impact on your life the variations specifically with respect to social welfare outcomes such as in education health etc exist within the world and within the same country why have indian states remained worlds apart in social development especially if they started at similar points historically if their trajectories were to be traced such as in the case of kerala and uttar pradesh for instance in her book how solidarity works for welfare subnationalism and social development in india dr prerna singh currently the mahatma gandhi assistant professor of political science and international studies and fellow at the watson institute brown university and a past affiliate of cpr studies precisely this arguing that subnationalism is a driver of social change or in other words states that demonstrated subnational identities fared better on social indicators her book has won the woodrow wilson prize awarded by the american political science association for the best book published in politics and international relations in 2015 and the barrington moore prize awarded by the american sociological association for the best book published in comparative historical sociology in 2015 her book has been recognized across the disciplines of sociology and political science today we will be in conversation with her to unpack the core arguments of her book further so prerna let me begin by asking you what do you mean by subnationalism so thank you so much um for having me and for asking me this question to start off because it is a very good question because it's not a word that is um in common parlance in a sense um and i definitely don't want the one thing i guess i'll begin by saying what it's not and uh, what it's not is i don't want it to think of it in a way as a diminutive of nationalism so i don't want it to be it's not the case that this is in any way a kind of sub form of nationalism or is in any way a reduced nationalism the sub in nationalism is really more to indicate this unit of analysis at which a form of collective identity operates that is similar to nationalism in so far as it is a people who have a belief in a shared past a certain set of shared symbols uh, a common culture broadly defined and this is an actively constructed common culture and an association with a certain territory and that's very important um and this is what distinguishes identities like nationalism and subnationalism from ethnic identities is this territorial grounding this belief in a shared homeland but unlike nationalism which in most theorizations of the concept is associated with a claim to sovereignty a desire for sovereignty subnationalism is nationalism in a sense without that claim to sovereignty so it can have for instance a demand at the root of it it can have a demand for greater autonomy within a, a larger sovereign unit 
And so subnationalism, um, in the case of the book, for instance, because it examines Indian state, subnationalism refers uh, to what other people might have referred to as regionalism um, or state identity, um, state solidarity. At the root of it is a certain sense of affective attachment, a certain sense of an us, which is constructed a certain sense of a we and a certain sense of community. It's not determined by demographics, and I want to be very clear by this. So subnationalism does Can not explain mean that a bit further. Sure. Um, so you know, there's a way in which one might think that if it's a more homogeneous community, um, demographically homogeneous, it's more likely to develop a sense of a shared identity. The converse of that is an argument that has got a lot of play in social science, which is that if you're a diverse community, you are not going to be able um, to develop a sense of a shared identity. Um, and that's not the part that they emphasize. What they have emphasized a lot, this particular political economy scholarship, talks about what they call the diversity development deficit. So this idea, um, which has been shown across a range of studies, that diversity is bad for development. And so when I initially came across um, this scholarship, um, I was conceptually unhappy with it, and I have an independent set of writings that deals with the scholarship. But it's also a very pessimistic um, statement for a country like India, which of course, as we know, is so diverse. Um, but when I got into the historical material of this book, especially for a case like Kerala, which is so religiously diverse, which is so homogeneous, uh, hom so heterogeneous across caste lines, and yet has a very strong sense of subnationalism, is that your demography isn't destiny is that you actively construct a sense of community. And so it's not the case that subnationalism is only a privilege of the homogeneous. So the state of Kerala, in a way, historically shows us, as does any state in India that has had a shared solidarity, because they're all so diverse on so many different cleavages, is that it's not about demographics. It's about how those demographics are used to construct a certain kind of politics. A very homogeneous state can be a very divided state. But a very heterogeneous state can be a very subnationalist state. And so to answer your question, a very long answer is that subnationalism is, is really much more, um, it's much more about the idea. It's much more about the solidarity. It's much more about the community. And certainly in some cases, for instance, in like the Scandinavian countries, um, a certain degree of ethnic homogeneity has helped them. But I don't think that it is either a necessary or a sufficient condition for subnationalism to use slightly jargony words, for which I apologize. Thank you. You don't have to apologize. Thanks for explaining that so well. So you have studied four states primarily in India in your mm -hmm. book, Uttar Pradesh, Rajasthan, Kerala and Tamil Nadu, and, and made these arguments. Mm -hmm. So do you want to dive deeper into some of the case examples now? Sure. The body of the book, um, which are, you know, chapters three to five are really, and the book conceptually began in the archives in these four states. Um, and these four states were chosen deliberately um, as cases that in a way showed the limits of what might think of as the most immediate argument that comes to mind when you think of why are these differences across, why do these differences in social development? occur across different Indian states. And so one of the more um, intuitive answers that a number of policymakers have also given is that basically social development is a product of economic development. So the richer the state, um, the more money it has to spend, the more money it spends in social welfare, consequently it has better development outcomes. And so that is not untrue. 
but it's not the whole story. So if you look, for instance, um, at Indian states, there are many states that do much better than would be predicted by its level of economic development and, and states that do much worse. And so I deliberately chose two states that um, you might say punch above their weight, so Kerala and Tamil Nadu, right. and two states that do worse than what would be predicted by its level of economic development is Rajasthan and UP. And then I also have a fairly extended um, shadow case study of Bihar, um, which in general falls into the negative case comparisons. Um, and the reason for choosing uh, these five states was also because it gives us um, a window into these the kind of north-south divide in India that a lot of people have spoken about. So I, there are three states which um, are neighboring states in north-central India and two states that are neighboring states in southern India. Um, they also allow us to have uh, some traction on arguments about colonialism insofar as I deliberately choose states that were both um, indirectly ruled by native rulers, so princely states, which was the case of Travancore and Cochin and Kerala, and Rajputana, the erstwhile princely states of Rajasthan, but also two directly ruled provinces, um, the United Provinces and uh, Madras Presidency. Mm -hmm. And so these are the this is the kind of historical context for the selection of these four states. And then I begin comparing these states. It depends on the state that I'm studying. Uh, the state that goes the furthest back in time is, is Kerala, which begins in the mid-19th century. Story really begins in the 1850s. But in a sense, um, where the story of each state begins is where this is. I, I try to get to a point when all four states looked quite similar. Which is when? So unfortunately, we are limited um, by the availability of data and by when the census begins, the colonial census. So the first colonial census is in 1881. And there are many reasons to kind of, you know, have problems and take issue with the data, but it is really the first data that we have. And if you look at the 1881 census, uh, which already is a, a few decades too late for my argument, but you can still see that there is no way in which you can really start to make an argument about the fact that Kerala is an exemplar of social development. Um, and or that UP is a basket case, right? So, so at that point in time, UP is hailed as a model province. Um, it's usually called the best governed of all Indian states. Uh, East India Company officials jockey with each other in London because a prize posting is a posting to UP. And this is, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a tremendous geographic location. You have the kind of Ganga River Valley. It um, does not have any of the kind of problems that the state of Kerala faces, which is endemic food shortages. Um, at this point in time, Kerala is in a very bad position. Um, the, in fact, it faces an active threat of annexation from neighboring Madras presidency. It is corrupt. Um, it is nepotistic. Um, it has almost no budget for social welfare. Um, they, they create a budget for public welfare, and then um, it turns out upon examination that most of this is going to temple upkeep. And so they're told that temple upkeep is not the only way that you think of public welfare. And so to some extent, you know, our present image of Kerala and UP was was exactly the reverse at that point, which was not that long ago. And so this, in a way, is what really piqued my interest, but also became the starting point. And similarly, I mean, I'm speaking of Kerala and UP because they're in a way the two exemplars. But Madras is in not great shape either. Um, Madras does marginally better than Kerala, which is also interesting because, of course, then Kerala overtakes Madras. Um, but Madras is pretty much as bad as UP is. Um, and so, you know, in a way, all these states uh, are looking quite similar, but then they begin to look very different very quickly. And so what I try to show in, in, the, in the book is how these 
very different uh, levels, very different constructions of identity happens. And in Kerala and Tamil Nadu, though separated by about 20-30 years, you develop this sense of a very strong shared solidarity. Malayali subnationalism, Tamil subnationalism. While in UP at this point in time, you're beginning to see the emergence of religious nationalism. So UP is, of course, the heart of the Muslim League, but much before that, it's the heart of both Hindu and Muslim divisive politics. And this really maps itself onto language, which is an important component of nationalism and subnationalism. So a lot of scholars have talk, talked about the fact, for instance, that everyone in UP really spoke one common tongue, which could be called Hindustani. Um, but as it began to get divided on religious lines, there was this movement to say that Hindus speak Hindi and Muslims speak Urdu. They were the same spoken tongue, but there were these active movements to then construct two different scripts. So Devanagari becomes the script of the Hindus, and of course the, the Urdu script becomes that. So it's all actively constructed at this point in time, but there's no sub-nationalism. Instead, there's this religious nationalism. I would like you to go further into, you know, this, this constructor sub-nationalism in Kerala, and let's say UP as the other, other example, um, with more examples. It, it would be interesting to understand. Um, so, in terms of um, more examples of how exactly this subnationalism emerges, yes, or, historically and constructed. Yeah. So, one of the dangers of looking like a, an, an identity and the effects of an identity, especially because an identity is always based on some form of exclusion, and most of the arguments out there talk about uh, identity as a negative force. And so, the one thing that um, really came home to me is that even though, you know, it is a very constructive, very progressive force. The emergence of it is by no means um, an altruistic affair, right? So what I show in the book is that Malayali subnationalism, for instance, as religious nationalism in UP, emerges because it suits the interests of the political elites, right? So, um, so I show, so chapter three is the one that really deals in some fair amount of detail about this. So again, it um, shows how the demographics were quite similar in these four states, not just the demographics, but also the socio-political situation. In particular, in many of these states, there was a very small dominant elite, which did not reflect the large part of the population. So for instance, in UP, um, it was really the Persian-speaking elite at that point in time. But they were the ones in charge. Right? So the Muslims were in power um, in terms of the fact that they occupied most, most government positions and they were also large landowners. But they constituted just about 11% of the population. Similarly, in Kerala, most of the government positions were held by Tamil Brahmins who were a very small proportion of the population. Very similar in Tamil Nadu um, as well. Uh, they were Tamil Brahmins. So in all these cases, there, there is what I call an established elite which comes from an ethnic minority, and they have massive political and economic control. So if you are from another group, how do you challenge the hegemony of this dominant elite? And that's where subnationalism becomes a very important tool in some states, but not in others. So in Kerala, for instance, um, there emerges a coalition between all the castes that are not in political power, which are basically the Nayas, um, the Edavas, who are this upwardly mobile caste, and the Syrian Christians. Now, you know, obviously the truly subaltern groups, um, the Dalits, um, and, and the 
caste at the bottom of the OBC hierarchy, even though that term was not used then, but the so-called depressed castes, they didn't really have the political wherewithal to challenge. So these were really what I call upwardly mobile challenger elites. But the way that the challenger elite made their claim to the state was to say, we are the native rulers. We are, not, we are the natives and so we should be the rulers or we should get our share of political power. And so in Kerala, because this was a minority of a foreign Brahmin, in a way, a Tamil Brahmin, they found it very convenient and very effective to come together as Malayalis. Because they realized from experience that they were going to be much less successful if they made caste-based claims. So if the Nayars said, I want representation for the Nayars, if the Edavas said, I want representation for the Edavas, it was much easier for the state to dismiss them. But if they said, we are Malayalis, these are foreign oppressors. This becomes a very powerful rallying cry. And so you really see this in something called the Malayali Memorial, which is in 1891, which is this um, petition to the state of Travancore, uh, which is the primary princely state that becomes um, Kerala. And they say, look, we are Malayalis. This is our birthright. We have a legitimate claim. And once this claim for Malayali-ness or Malayali solidarity is made, it becomes very powerful. And they make it very cleverly. So they go back to kind of, you know, historic heroes. They go back to Parshuram, but they also go back to Mahabali. And they say, you know, not just, but then when they begin to say, we are Malayali, what does it, what ethical obligations, what psychological results come from that identification? And you see very quickly that both as a result of the fact that they have now taken on this Malayali identity, but also because then Malayali identity in a way goes out of their hands. It diffuses through popular movements and becomes a much larger popular political construct. Is then you see claims being made. So you both demand as a Malayali, but then you also have to have some kind of responsibility as a Malayali, right? And so your responsibility is to the community. And so you quickly see these claims being made um, in the press, in public meetings, that our commitment is to Malayali welfare. And it's quite interesting because, you know, fast forward many years, when the communist government puts in place the public distribution system in Kerala, ration shops, they call them Mahabali stores. And this to me is so interesting because Mahabali is that mythical king under whose rule all Malayalis were one, he, they were all equal, and he was a very progressive ruler. And so, you know, the fact that the shop by which all Malayalis go to get their kind of, you know, rations has been named a after a sub-national hero who is known for his commitment to Malayali welfare is, I think, a kind of very, it, it speaks a lot um, to the nature of the argument. But I'm happy to talk about UP, which is the flip side um, as well. Um, so in UP, you have a very similar situation. A very small elite is in charge of political power. But unlike in Kerala, the way that they are dislodged or the attempt to dislodge them happens by the challenger elites is less by claiming any kind of UP identity and much more through a Hindu identity. So it becomes the Muslims have oppressed us, they're in charge of political power, they're a minority. And so this becomes very much this point about Hindu merchant castes who are so most of these challenger elites come from economically mobile, um, upwardly mobile classes. They're beginning to get rich, to put it starkly. Um, they're beginning to get rich, but they don't have the political power to go with their growing economic muscle. 
And in UP, they basically make this claim for political representation as Hindus. Once they do that, the language bifurcation begins to happen by which a common spoken tongue Hindustani becomes this site of a highly divisive politics of Hindi Hindu and Urdu Muslim and and you and you quickly see demands being made not just only for your religious community but against that of the other religious community so there's this very when i was most of this work also happened through reading newspapers of this time from these different provinces and so if you read um, newspapers in what was then the United Provinces of Agra and Awadh, um, it's really interesting to see the way, for instance, that letters to the editor are written or op-ed pieces are written. And they talk about the fact that, you know, um, the government has just issued all this money um, to open schools for Muslims. Um, but, you know, even schools that are not explicitly for Muslims, if they are in Aligarh, become schools for Muslims. So there's a way in which that religious lens colors your view of social welfare. And so they talk about the fact that, you know, to open schools for the other community is to like, quote, feed a serpent. So it's not just that you are campaigning only for the welfare of your community, you're also actively campaigning against the provision of welfare for the other community. And so in a way, religious nationalism um, determines the way that demands for social welfare are made. And uh, of course, UP politics change quite dramatically um, after independence because of course, um, the creation of Pakistan as an ostensible homeland for the Muslims in a way takes the wind out of some of the Muslim politics um, in UP. And so I would argue that UP actually goes through three phases. Um, I note in the book, one is the colonial period where it is really much more about religious nationalism. Um, the post-independence period from the 50s to the 80s is the fact that UP really thinks and carries upon itself this mantle of being the heartland of India. And so it's really about the fact that UP represents India. This is what the core of India is, and so consequently they take on national concerns, not subnational ones. And then in the 1990s, you see the kind of emergence of caste-based mobilization, um, as well as a resurgence of religious mobilization. And then again, you see demands being made. Mayavati is a particularly egregious instance of this in the Ambedkar village program. But the idea that, you know, money is given if you are a Dalit party in power, money is given for Dalit welfare, right? Um, if you're the BJP in power, you do things for the Hindu welfare. But so in a way, UP goes from sectional identities, I would say, to refer to identities like religion and caste that operate below the subnational level or the national level. You're basically a guardian of and a propagator of Delhi's interests. But there's no way that there's a UP-level solidarity. Thanks for that, Prerna. That was really interesting. So my question to you would be, um, you, you're not condemned to not being a subnational forever, right? Um, maybe Bihar and Rajasthan have shown some incipient forms of subnationalism over time. Do you want to comment on that? Thank you for that question. It's a great question. And to some extent, it also kind of, you know, allows me to revise what I said at the beginning, which is that these states both give us a window into the north-south divide um, in India. But the decision to compare Rajasthan and UP and Bihar, right, I didn't, the reason why, in a sense, looking at all three states is so interesting is because they don't, to, want, to some level, they speak of a kind of story of backwardness. 
as examples of uh, of that tendency across the Bimaru states. But there are also very important differences between these three neighboring states um, that are very similar in many other ways. And Rajasthan and Bihar, um, in the book, I kind of, um, you know, put them in a section called Hope Amid Backwardness um, to flag the fact uh, that, especially compared to a place like UP, there have in the last couple of decades um, been some very interesting developments in these two states uh, that are resonant of developments in Kerala and UP about 100 years ago. And the interesting thing is that in Rajasthan, um, so the state of Rajasthan is very interesting because it has a highly fractured identity when it comes into being as a state in independent India, partly because it used to be over 22 different princely states and the allegiances to these princely states are very strong. And yet you have a government, and this is also very interesting because um, it's a Congress government led by Sukhadia, but it is Unlike UP, where the Congress government in UP is basically a kind of, you know, it's a junior wing of the National Congress, the Rajasthan Congress really from the very beginning under Sukhadia has a very distinct identity. And they pay the price for this in the emergency and when Indira Gandhi emerges. But Nehru, in a kind of, you know, testimony to kind of Nehru's tolerance um, for to some degree of opposition, the Rajasthani Congress, I would argue, really is a vehicle for Rajasthani sub-nationalism, particularly under Sukhadia. I began to be alerted to this through interviews with him um, that you can read in old newspapers, but also through talking to people who worked with him. So I interviewed a lot of bureaucrats who'd worked um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, and they would all talk about the fact that, you know, Sukhadia sahab would always say, ki hum Rajasthan ke liye kya kar sakte hain? Hamara kya hai hamare ye naye Pradesh ke liye? And the idea that, you know, Rajasthan was now a new construct and he did not apparently at all allow or enjoy the kind of playing away the caste politics or of this notion of princely state identities. Um, and you know those have been very important. Rajasthan is one of the only states in India where the Rajasthan state archives are not in the state capital. So if you want to consult the Rajasthan state archives you have to trudge to Bikaner. And it is a reflection of just how tenuous these princely state uh, agreements were. The Maharaja of Jodhpur, if you've seen the movie Zubeda, like almost had famously pulled a trigger or uh, pulled out a gun. You know, it said, "I'll never join India," because these were these were princely states that were used to having their own autonomy and, in many ways, were also entitled to it. You could see from their point of view. So, you know, he inherited a state that had a lot of these tensions, and so he actively tried to create this idea of Rajasthan. And so there was an early movement, which unfortunately didn't go very far, under a very important female. Um, leader of the Congress and she made this case that they should be Rajasthani. That's how the Rajasthani culture and, and tourism and all of that has grown? That happened in the 90s later but you know she spoke about the fact that there needs to be Rajasthani is a language. So if you go back to 1918 Grierson's linguistic survey of India he says Rajasthani is a different language from Hindi. So she really picks this up and says that Rajasthani is the language uh, that is the language of our state and we should petition um, the Indian constitution to recognize Rajasthani as a language. Very interesting because the Sahitya Academy gives a separate award in Rajasthani. So you have an award in Hindi, you have an award in Urdu, you also have an award in Rajasthani and that Vijaydan Deta has won in many ways. So you also have people like Vijaydan Deta who are you know very clearly Rajasthani patriots. 
and of course you know the the move to make rajasthani as a language falters but it's an indicator of what was being tried and that's why i call it an incipient rajasthani subnationalism they commission um, a lot of books about rajasthan histories of rajasthan that de-emphasize the differences between princely states and really talk about this kind of the con- in a way um, they tried to kind of construct a identity of Rajasthan, uh, which really emphasizes this kind of martial valor um, and a kind of certain history of chivalry, but it's all constructed in many ways. But it's this idea that, you know, what can we do that's all pan-Rajasthan? There's a very interesting, um, in a way, a kind of uh, a show and light show that begins to happen uh, through a very important uh, cultural entrepreneur um, in Rajasthan who takes the, this show, which is about the pride and glory of Rajasthan. He takes it traveling across villages in Rajasthan. It has hundreds of shows and is an institution um, to, it's an institution in itself that people have studied. But a lot of these kind of cultural interventions in terms of language, in terms of declaring a lot of properties, Rajasthani heritage, they try to kind of construct Rajasthani folk songs, um, but also in terms of this show that literally arrived. Um, and of course, I, unfortunately, you know, I don't think that they managed to preserve the archives. But if you hear the description of this um, this show, and it's in this book called The Idea of Rajasthan that is edited by Lloyd Rudolph and a number of other scholars of Rajasthan, they talk about this kind of deep emotional impact of, you know, a village which barely has any, any electricity, this kind of song and light show trundles into your village, everyone arrives at night, it goes on and this booming voice comes on and it says Mara Rajasthan. And, you know, they kind of talk about the kind of valor of the state and how we're all Rajasthani, but it's really like, you know, in a way it's like Eugen Weber talking about how they create Frenchmen out of peasants and you know so this is really a kind of very deliberate move to try to construct a sense of Rajasthani identity um, of course you know I it, it's not very successful for a variety of reasons but interestingly and this to me um, is important because it emphasis de-emphasizes the importance of partisan politics it in a way, to me, in Rajasthani politics, the successor of Sukhadia is the BJP chief minister, Bhero Singh Shekhawat, because he really takes on, he's in many other ways, even though he's from, a, he's from the opposition to Sukhadia, he is a Rajasthani patriot. And again, this comes out through interviews with people that he worked with, also a very long interview with him, which in which he spoke about how important this idea of Rajasthan was to him. And you see that, you know, in a way, Rajasthan makes the single largest jump that any Indian state has ever made is from 91 to 2001 Rajasthan jumps 22% in literacy this is unprecedented no other state has ever done that in fact very few countries in the world have managed to jump 22% and this is a really important time for Rajasthan and I show that the BJP in Rajasthan at this point in time is basically a Rajasthani sub-nationalist party it does not toe the central government line. I mean, Shekhawat is doing things like, you know, actively saying he would give refuge to Muslims fleeing Gujarat because Muslims are welcome in Rajasthan. He's also opening up the gates of mosques. He's hosting Idul Fitra parties. So this is a very different BJP. Um, and a lot of people have written about this, um, that the BJP in Rajasthan is really a kind of, you know, it's a sub-nationalist party. And I show how this uh, is a very important way in which Rajasthani subnationalism is sought to be communicated to the masses and the impact this has on the way in which social welfare policies get instituted. So I'm not saying that no other factor was important. There were very important civil society government collaborations, but an over but this happens within the context of an overarching identification with and commitment to Rajasthan. 
quite similar to what Nitish Kumar does in Bihar um, in the 2000s. You know, he breaks with his political ally, Lalu Yadav, and he says, look, I'm not a casteist politician. And not only that, he basically says Bihar has been ruined by caste. But there's so much to be proud of in Bihar. So it's quite interesting because he actually uses the word subnationalism, which is so rarely used even in scholarly parlance that it's quite exciting to kind of really hear a politician talk about it. But if you hear his election speeches, and particularly he has this very nice interview to Sagarika Ghosh, um, and he talks about he's in this helicopter and he's just about to land at this you know massive rally, and she asks him, you know, you keep talking about Bihari subnationalism. What do you mean? And he has this beautiful set of lines in which he says, you know, it's about pride, it's about garv, it's about recovering the fact that Bihari being, you know, you're proud to be Bihar, Bihar is the land of the Buddha, it's the land of Nalanda, there is so much to be proud of and it's very interesting because a lot of these moves are um, mirrored in the cultural realm. So if you look at Subodh Gupta, one of India's best known artists, um, and he had a show at the NGME in which one of the first um, works of art there was this picture, beautiful uh, and very evocative portrait that he has, a self-portrait of himself. And in that, below it is the word Bihari in Devanagari, and it flashes, Bihari. And when he talks, but he has spoken about this work of art, and I've spoken to him about it as well, he always says, look, when I came to Delhi as a boy from the rural hinterland of Bihar, I realized that Bihari was a curse word. It was basically an insult. And so this painting was in a way him kind of, you know, it's in a way kind of him in re-incorporating this Bihari identity and saying, I'm Bihari, right? So I don't know to what extent he's doing it actively in this subnationalist vein, but there is a way in which Nitish Kumar is doing the same thing. He's saying, you can be proud to be Bihari. And he does it in many different ways. And you see it, you know, it's this way that it begins and then you see it move actively, both through social movements. So there's a YouTube channel called Jai Bihar, um, in which they let out songs and anthems about how you're proud to be Bihari. There's a, a move among young um, qualifiers to the civil service examin examination to say that if you have to choose your cadre, choose Bihar, choose your home state, come back here, which for years, you know, you never chose Bihar. Bihar was the insult cadre. My father's in the bureaucracy. So UP was the cadre you chose, you know, for whatever reason, no one wanted to go to Bihar. But so there's this movement at, you know, very different levels in the artistic sphere, in the popular sphere, at the elite sphere. And I think it's really important because it's this idea that, you know, Bihar can only develop if Bihar develops as Bihar. There has to be this idea of subnational solidarity. Directly. And the social indicators have moved. Exactly, gradually. Yeah. And, you know, of course, it's not a kind of linear progression, so it's we all wait to see what happens. But I think they're all, they're all in a sense, I think, um, important inspirations for UP as it stands poised at a very important brink today. And coming to that, uh, I'll come to my last question, talking of change and of UP. So, um, you know, what about uh, leaders like I mean, Sachin Pilot, who, who is a caste leader, who is now emerging to be a subnational leader, but particularly Akhilesh Yadav, who also started off as a caste leader, mm -hmm. but is now trying to emerge as a subnational leader. Your thoughts on that and on the upcoming UP election? So I think it's, a, it's, an, it's an exciting time, and I'm, you know, not that I want to make a prediction, but what I do want to say is how exciting it is to see this new crop of leaders. And I think. Um, you know, if I were Akhilesh, I would take a page out of Nitish's book, not just because, um, you know, we've seen, in a sense, the, the positive consequences that can happen by 
by really emphasizing the state rather than caste politics first. But because it's a very real example, you know, much of the Kerala and Tamil Nadu story, even though I think we have very short time horizons. I don't think of, as someone who does comparative historical analysis, I think of 150 years ago as relatively recent. You know, people who work in the policy realm think of 15 years ago as kind of old hat. But I do think that there's a way in which, you know, um, Nitish could be, he's not young, but in a way he is, I would put him together with these new crop of leaders as a set of leaders who are poised to play a very interesting and important role. It'll be interesting to see how exactly they balance, of course, electoral calculations, their own political parties. Um, but as I said, the historic the hist history shows us that subnationalism is not an identity that happens, it doesn't emerge in a cuddly, nice way. You know, it emerges because it's very useful to you. It emerges because it serves a particular purpose. It's a very strategic decision, at least historically it was in the cases that I study, which makes me more optimistic about the fact that perhaps there's a way in which people like Akhilesh and Sachin Pilot, much like Nitish Kumar, will come to Bihari subnationalism because it's convenient to them and because in a way it offers an option, a kind of third way, if you may, to the castaway politics that have really had a very negative, devastative even um, consequence for these states. And in that way, I'd also just flag, you know, some, a place like Odessa, just talking about that part of India. Now, someone like Jay Panda or um, a number of other people, you know, people don't realize it, but so, you know, Odessa is not Odessa anymore, it's called Odisha. And why would you rename a state? Why would you call it Odisha? What does it say? Who? Why are you doing this? And what consequences does it have? I think these are important questions we need to ask ourselves, um, especially because in UP, the whole idea of dividing UP into Harit Pradesh and four other provinces is also a very active and alive idea. So I think UP could go two ways. Either there's this way to kind of recover not even recover, create a UP-level identity, which has never historically existed, um, or to really go that route of saying, look, this is different cultural, historic, social regions. Divide the state, as many states of India have been divided, and then you go about constructing that solidarity at that level. So, you know, in a way, two quite distinct um, forking paths that UP could take. Thank you, um, and on that note, we will end this podcast. Thank you so much for taking out the time to discuss your book. Mm, thanks. Pleasure's all mine. If you enjoyed this episode of Thought Space and want to learn more about the research CPR does across various topics, please subscribe to our mailing list and social media channels through our website www.cprindia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India.